No, you can't mess me up. I'm gonna take my shoes off now to start counting. Chimney crickets. All right, hey all you. So that's what I'm doing wrong. All right. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado and interruptions from the peanut gallery, we will let our wonderful guest and longtime fan, Matthew Goodwin, introduce himself. Okay, hi, and so JR got it right. I'm Matthew A. Goodwin. I am a science fiction author with six books out currently, all cyberpunk books, and I came to this podcast as a fan, and they were lucky, or I was lucky enough that they let me on as a guest, so it's real wish fulfillment for me to be here. Well, thank you. Flattery will get you everywhere. And so normally we'd ask how we first found them, but he just told us he reached out to us. So Matt, how did you, Matthew, how did you find us? Uh, so I found you when I was setting out to become a sort of indie author. I was trying to consume podcasts as quickly as I could to learn about the craft and just hear what other indie authors had to say. So I found you guys in the previous podcast and I followed you over here. And then with Seska, I obviously met her at FaulknerCon, where we both came together because of our love of Faulkner. If she doesn't remember, she talked about not liking Faulkner on oh, her yeah, introduction like episode. <laughs> See, I am a fan. He's very long-winded. And uh, the one thing I ever learned is if, you, if, it's, if he wants you to think it's pretty, he uses an L in there. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Faulkner was one of those authors that actually made me want to write, but I can completely appreciate how he is not for everybody. <laughs> Fair enough. That's what we call a throwback there, dear listener. <laughs> right, Doc, stop giggling. Put the coffee down. Well, no, you've had, you've had too much coffee. Come on, let's get on the show. Well, you one morning podcast. Religion question. <laughs> Why right. are you throwing me off? I know what the next ones are. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Ooh. So this, um, I love these religion questions. Um, for me, it was really Star Wars was the thing. My brother was all about Star Trek. It never quite hooked me uh, as a young person, but I wish now that I had loved it because it's so iconic. And... Um, but well, Star Wars for me, home. you can start loving it now. You know, I actually, I, I think I may move into space for my next book series, so it might be time now. I've been rewatching Battlestar Galactica. Um, okay, but, so uh, Star Wars is the um, Star Wars was always the thing for me. I, you know, as a fantasy person and a science fiction person, it sort of is the perfect amalgamation of both because you have sort of fantasy storytelling, but in this you know, laser guns, laser swords world. It still really speaks to me. The first time I went to Batu, you know, at Disneyland, it was, I mean, that is really, really cool. Just walking around in Star Wars. So I, 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 I still love Star Wars to this day. All right. Since you mentioned Battlestar Galactica, Battlestar Galactica, Stargate or The Expanse? Oh, okay. So for me, it's BSG. I, 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 from the first episode when they were counting down, I mean, that is how you do television. When they were counting down, it takes you, it drops you in midstream with no 
preparation, you just get it. They are being hunted by the Cylons. They have been hunted for this by the Cylons for this long. It was it was genius storytelling. I mean, you can tell in later seasons when they were trying to fill in episodes. And if you listen to some of the director commentaries, they were admittedly trying to fill in in episodes because they had these 22 episode seasons and they just did not have the content for it. And you can tell, but it still was just, it was just a mastercraft in storytelling. So JR. Okay. So book question, fantasy religion. Uh, are you a Dresden files? I Lord of the Rings or Forgotten Realms? Ooh, that is great. Um, for me, it will it will always be uh, Tolkien. He was he was my entry point into all of this. Um, so so that and again with long winded authors, apparently I have a theme here already. In ten minutes in, um, <laughs> I I just I loved. I, I've always loved it. I was one of those kids that when other kids were reading Harry Potter. I was reading the Silmarillion like that, that, that was my, my nerddom. And admittedly, I've actually, I've never read the Dresden files, which is, I, I can't believe I'm admitting that there was no reason to admit it, but I need, I need to listen, listening to the way people talk about it. I need, I need to get into that next. Uh, I will, uh, I'm sure one of Butcher's fans will come and get me, but I really like the early ones much better than the later ones. Um, well, sometimes stories are hard to sustain, you know? No, I think it's just, I liked the cast of characters get so big and sometimes it's too big for me and I'm just like, okay. But I think also I may just not be as into the gritty detective novel anymore as, as I was, we go through phases as readers. So. And isn't that the truth? I mean, especially in the last year, I feel like even, you, you know, you hear a lot of stories about during the course of the pandemic reader tastes really changed where in the early days, everybody was obsessed with these pandemic stories. And then at about the three, four month mark, everybody just wanted light romance because nobody wanted to think about the real reality of the world anymore. I I will admit, I uh, I burned through books at one point and they were like, the more popcorn-y they were, the better for me. That, that's um, exactly right. We ended up rewatching Shit's Creek because we were like, we just want something light. Well, there was a psychology study done that shows that uh, watching shows or movies or even reading books that you've read before is a comfort. It's a psychological comfort. So that makes absolute and, sense. And uh, because, you know, when the world is unpredictable, it's a place where, you know, things are predictable and you know what's going to happen next. I, I, I tended towards books with low body counts, I will admit. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Game of Thrones was maybe not your cup of tea. So no, yeah, no, I did not read Game of Thrones. Um, I didn't read. Uh, there were a lot of MLSF books I didn't read because I didn't want to deal with body counts. <laughs> that, um, that, that makes sense. Yeah, Jr. is fun, being funny in that. But what was your favorite first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Um, so for me, and I, I, I tell the story in, the, in my author bio. Um, for me, I first came to science fiction and fantasy because I found a Hobbit box set, a Hobbit cassette box set in a wooden box in my elementary school library. And I checked it out. It was dramatized, I think recorded in like the seventies. And I started listening to the Hobbit book on tape as it were at the time and instantly became obsessed. And um, so that was my entry point. And then at the time I also found 
the audio recordings of The Empire Strikes Back, and so then immediately went to Star Wars. So those <laughs> two things, those two properties got their hooks in me, I mean, at a really, really young age. So then by 12, I was starting to, well, I mean, maybe spoiler alert for our next question. By 12, then I, I wanted to start writing um, this kind of stuff. And I started with fantasy also. I started okay. with um, sort of Warhammer Dungeons and Dragons ripoff stuff. You know, you got to start somewhere. And if you're going to rip something off for your first novel or first short story project at home, those work. Because, you know, you, if you're going to copy, you might as well try and emulate the best. I've, I've always agreed with that philosophy. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola sort of famously talked about that, where he talks about Sonny's death, and he just lifted that directly from Bonnie and Clyde. So now what is that what you love about the genre? Like, tell me what you love about this genre of sci-fi fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for most, I mean, I, I would think for most people and for myself, certainly also, um, it's it's escapism. I, I loved, I've always loved escaping into these other worlds, these fantastical realms. I, I, I just, even when it is grim and there's body counts, it, there's something to be said for just disappearing from the real world into these fantastical worlds. So I think that's, um, for me, that's always, always been it, the, the sort of escapism of it. So what was your very first memory? You mentioned some of the early books you read, but was that the, the first time you touched the genre? Was it, you know, cartoons that maybe before that, or cause you know, The Hobbit and The Last Unicorn were cartoons when we were kids. Um, yeah, yeah. Was it, um, you know, potentially a video game or whatever? Uh, no, yeah, for me, my it really was those audiobooks really were sort of my entry entry point. Um, I think probably Fraggle Rock being sort of fantastical, but um, yeah, for the, I think for the I, I think really it was those Hobbit audiobooks, and then eventually that that very weird now Hobbit cartoon movie that I eventually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember watching that and being very confused. Yeah, there are some things that I think as a parent now, I would be less inclined to let my kid watch that were totally fine for us to watch. What, Jer? No, I was just scribbling in the uh, the hashtags that I don't know if they help, but we're going to keep doing them. So many authors <laughs> let... Um, the, the, their life experiences shape the sort of stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments for you that shaped you as a storyteller? Um, I, I, you know, the sort of formative moments for me when I think about um, becoming a, a, a writer is um, realizing that I connected to literature in a way that maybe not all other kids did when I was very young, um, so I think nine or 10, Jurassic Park was going to come out as a movie. So I got the book, Jurassic Park, and I started reading Michael Crichton at, a, at way, yes. way too young an age. And the teachers actually had to tell my parents, like he's reading content that might not be entirely appropriate for kids his age. And so I switched over because it was a classic to Sherlock Holmes, which wasn't much more appropriate, but because it sort of had a cachet, it was it was okay for a 10-year-old to be reading Sherlock Holmes because it, it had this name, even though it was literally murder mysteries. Um, 
But so for me, I realized that I had this connection with with storytelling at a very young age, which, you know, so it doesn't surprise me now that by 12 years old, I was trying to write stories and my spelling was appalling. I mean, it hardly is English now to look back, but it, it um, you know, it, there are those moments where you sort of realize that your life might have to go a certain direction. Yeah, I, uh, I had that same problem where I could read way above what I was probably emotionally ready to hear. Uh, I remember reading um, some pretty dark Stephen King in like the third or fourth grade just to shock the teacher because I knew they probably wouldn't want me to read it. Not that I actually even liked King or liked the story. It was just one of those things where it's like, huh, how can I tweak their noses? Like little boys are wont to do. So I, I, I remember totally at a that. dinner table, I read the part where Nedry is gutted by uh, uh, the Dilophosaurus. And he. I remember still to this day, they talk about him ho holding his bowels in his hands um, and I read that yes. to sort of tweak my parents' noses. That we are right on the same wavelength here. Yeah, yeah. see, my parents took the, uh, but my mom was that kid, definitely. She tweaked the teachers a lot. My mom actually, she gave me a lot of those things, but her response when a teacher voiced something similar was, well, we discuss it. And that's the best way for her to become ready to deal with these things. And so my mom, and then, um, I live in the, the South and uh, I, I became a pagan at a very young age and uh, for my mom, in my mom's opinion, uh, because my mom felt like if once you were 13, you're old enough to explore your own religious choice in my mother's viewpoint. And I can understand that you have the cognitive skills, you're still forming them, but you still have the beginning cognitive skills. And so my somebody at my school said something and my mom went out and got the most outrageous titles like magic from the witchcraft from the inside which was a, a great historical like research book it talked about art and like the pagan pagan iconography that got incorporated into the church without people realizing and why um but yeah my mom had and she's like i want you to read it and i want you to be holding it up so they can all see the title so they can all have a problem with it and they can fuck it and my mother wonders why i have that attitude as an adult <laughs> That's amazing. My mother is a character on her own. <laughs> so, but, did you also read like nonfiction for the fun of it as well when you were younger? Uh, not as much nonfiction. I, 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 like I sort of said, I was much more into the escapism. Um, I'll read some nonfiction now, mostly biographies, but for the most part, I've, I've actually never really connected all that much with, with nonfiction. I remember we had the door-to-door uh, -door encyclopedia salespeople and we had the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica for kids that I would read when I outpaced the library's ability to get me new books. That's called desperate. Yeah. But it was yeah, interesting I mean, I stuff like, too. Like I, reading a dictionary essentially. Ugh. I mean, it's a good way to learn. Oh, my me, you know, it was much more Mr. Wizard if I was gonna get like, I loved that kind of stuff. I, I've always loved learning but give it to me more in TV and documentaries than in the written word. If I, if, if it's the written word, it seems to be much more, yeah, much more fantasy sci-fi for me. Yeah, I will admit, I consume different uh, themes when I watch TV versus when I'm reading. Like, yeah, it's they're a weird completely there. different interests. So. All right. I was gonna say, it's time for your favorite questions, Doc. Okay, yay! From transitioning to the fan side of things, because 
that's what we love too. Have you gotten any cool fan art or a cosplay of a character yet? I, I have. I've, I've received uh, quite a bit of fan art, um, which is always really, really cool. The only cosplay I've ever had was I commissioned myself. Um, I, I uh, had one of the, a fan favorite character. I decided to write a novella because people really responded well to, to one of my sort of street samurai badass female characters. So I, I wrote her backstory and I reached out to a, a cosplayer because it just seemed like such a cool thing to actually see this character visually. So on the cover of, of her novella, I actually have cosplay. I'm hoping in the future we'll get some some more cosplay from my world, but I have received fan art. So if you go to my Instagram, you can see some of the, the fan art I've gotten. One, one particularly cool one was for, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Gish. It's the greatest international scavenger hunt and it's hosted by Misha who was on Supernatural who played, I can't remember the character's name on Supernatural. Misha Collins, that's his name. Yeah, Misha was played by, he played the angel. Right, cool. Sweet guy. Yes, and and all of the money they, they, you know, they all this scavenger hunt raises money for great causes, but somebody actually did fan art of Ina of the same character for um, for the greatest international scavenger hunt. And so they tagged me and they tagged Misha. And that was that was really, really cool for me. That's super neat. So uh, uh, speaking of, you might notice this episode. Hold on. This episode is a little bit different because uh, Doc's actually sober because it's only like 11 in the morning. So she's drinking lots of coffee. If she seems a little jittery, she's not dying. Speaking of coffee, this is my abrupt force segue transition. Uh, before the show, we were talking about weird coffee drinks, and she gave this most brilliant coffee place. So you have to talk real quick about the coffee ice cubes, and then we're going to talk about a cup. <laughs> so I went to uh... – if you're in Atlanta, there's a place called Bagel 101, and they have coffee ice cubes. So the ice cubes are made with coffee, and as you di drink your coffee, because this is Georgia, and your ice melts, instead of it becoming watery, it becomes more caffeinated. That is that is just such genius. That I, is I, too I, amazing I not to I share with the world. How that isn't everywhere. I don't know, but I love it. Yeah, that's so good. If and since we're talking in, about coffee, I will talk about my branded coffee cup. That has so I I um got three corporate logos made um for for companies in my world because you know it's cyberpunk so of course the companies are as much characters the sort of villainistic companies are as much characters um as the as the characters themselves so I, you know I had a couple of those made and it, it's really cool because then my wife got it put on uh, a mug for me. So now I can walk around. I've only once had somebody ask what it is and they did buy a book as a result of me talking about it. So there you go. The branding nice. actually worked. That is awesome. All right, I like it. It's, it's pretty neat. And now so I want iced you, coffee because I might actually like it that way. It <laughs> is glorious. So has anyone asked you for your autograph out in public away from a convention or a book signing? Not, uh, it, it's only ever really been at, at, at book signings. Um, okay. I've had people reach out to me via my website. I guess this counts. People have reached out to me via my website to ask for signed copies that I will ship to people um, around the world. So certainly in that way, most of my career, I published my first book in, in July of 2019. So most of my 
um, career has been career really has been during during COVID during um, socially stunted time. Right. So I haven't had the opportunity um, to do much. I did one book signing at the launch of my first book, but then pretty much most of the releases of my other books have happened when we can't do things like that. But I have had people reach out to me on my website and want and want signed copies, and that's always unbelievably flattering. That's awesome. So you know they really, really want you in their life. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's so it's really really sweet. So have I'm not you, gonna lie. The first person that the first person that sent me one of those letters and asked for an autograph copy, I gave it to him for free because I was just like, oh my god, they wanted an autograph. I may have done the same thing, and then regretted it when they told me <laughs> that they were in Ireland. <laughs> yeah, it could have been worse. Australia is bad. Ooh, yeah, that'll do you. So have you had any spotting of your book in the wild? So again, the the, the problem with yeah. uh, with social distancing, you know, I'm not going to be able to see it on the bus so much. Also, um, while my book is out in paperback, most of my sales, of course, do come from Kindle Unlimited and, and eBooks. So as a result, it's a little creepy. I mean, you know, I'm not opposed to doing it, but it's a little creepy to be just sort of like, <laughs> Ooh, what are you reading like, over there? Do you happen to be there. reading yeah. into neon? That is totally understandable. So, uh, especially in an era when we we've learned finally to give each other a little bit more personal space. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's really oh. hard at six feet to creep on somebody's phone. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I, I I'm I'm just picturing somebody going, but 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 yeah, no, I understand. Um, so have you had any funny interactions with a fan, which probably would be mostly online these days? Um, so I was most excited for this question. I assume you guys are familiar with Rule 34? Yes. Okay. Everything that exists, exists on the internet as adult mature content. Rule 34. That is correct. So one of the first pieces of fan art that I ever got was this same fan favorite uh, character, um, but without a top on. And oh. this guy sent it to me uh, from sort of Eastern Europe. And he said, please don't share this with anybody, but I wanted to share it with you. Here's my fan art of Ina. And it was, I mean, it was interesting. So that was certainly the one of the stranger fan interactions. I was super flattered and look, I will always take more art. It just wasn't at all what I was expecting. Did you share, did you pass that over to your wife then? Yeah, so of course I will have. I certainly have shared this with with my wife and with my close friends because <laughs> it's just one of those things. I mean, it was one of my first pieces of fan art, so it's one of those weird things where I was like, I have to show people with this, but you know, it's also I, I'm not allowed to share it publicly, which I really wish I could. All so right, so like transitioning back. To Say what? Yeah, that, that at least he had good skills with it. Yes, absolutely. All right, so this is the part of the inter uh, interview, dear listener, where uh, Matthew A. Goodwin gets to tell us about everything he's written. So can we get the Reader's Digest version of your uh, your back catalog? Yeah, absolutely. So I have been written, writing so far a series called A Cyberpunk Saga. So it is planning, because I am a plotter, so it is planning to be a seven-book series. It, it already has and will continue to have uh, novellas and side stories. Um, I already discovered that there's going to have to be a lit RPG 
novel in between books three and four. Book four just came out last week. Um, and um, I also have Neo Cyberpunk, which is an anthology that me and one other author put together with um, a whole bunch of other really talented uh, cyberpunk indie authors. I think it's really cool to sort of, especially when you're in a smaller genre, to bring people together. Um, so actually last year, I also created and co-founded Cyberpunk Day as just sort of a celebration of everything cyberpunk. So we did 24 hours online of readings and you know we had uh, direct uh, movie directors and video game makers and authors and musicians all just sharing their indie love of, of cyberpunk. So we'll be doing that again this coming year. Actually, as we speak, um, one of my partners in, in Cyberpunk Day is currently sitting out on the streets in San Diego talking to people about Cyberpunk Day. So when is Cyberpunk Day? Since you brought it up, we have to make sure that we, we have it. Absolutely, October 10th is Cyberpunk Day. Um, so we will be celebrating again. If you go to cyberpunkday.com, you know you can get all of the info there. The cool thing, I wanted cyberpunkday.com to actually be useful to people. So it has a bunch of recommendations for sort of lesser known cyberpunk properties for people who maybe played Cyberpunk 2077 and want more, but don't just want to watch The Matrix. Oh yeah, no, I, I one of the things with that's really awesome, and you see it with Lit RPG too, is that fandom gets so, because they are like, they're outnumbered by everybody else, right? They become so passionate and love it and they support each other really well. And that's beautiful to see. Right. So. And it's just, it's cool to be a part of any of those sort of smaller communities and cyberpunk. I've really found sort of my people there, which has been an absolute, an absolute um, blessing for me. So that's been really, really cool to bring people together through the anthology and then through cyberpunk day also. Um, I'll tell this story really quickly and then we can move on to a question. But the reason I came up with the idea is I saw online that there was a national denim day. And I thought, man, you know what, if denim gets its own day, I, I really think I should probably make cyberpunk day a thing too. If something as cool as cyberpunk should really have its own day too. Of course, some people uh, think it's a little against the sort of cyberpunk ethos to do that kind of thing. But that uh, I'll let that be nitpicked. Hey. On Reddit. You know what, have fun with things, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. When we get when we get into my book, um, I, that's sort of definitely my attitude towards towards things too. Now, we here at the uh, Blasters and Blades are big fans of short content, so we've actually started a whole series where we interview authors about short stories, novellas, and novelettes that they do. And because they're short content, they're short interviews, about half an hour. But we'll get with you offline and see if we can't get that anthology, get some of those authors on just to, to mix up some content. Absolutely. Um, normally, you know, authors maybe reach maybe out. Maybe around right. October 10th. Yeah. Yeah. Or, uh, um, so while all of that sounds fascinating, we're here to tell uh, to talk today about Into the Into Neon, a cyberpunk saga. So where did you – oh, you know what? We didn't ask him about the cover. So where did you get the, uh, the inspiration for this amazing art? Yeah, so um, – Look, if you look at the cover, you'll see that it is reminiscent of other cyberpunk property covers, and that was precisely what I wanted. Um, I wanted a cover that when you look at it, you knew what you were getting. The same thing with the title, too. Um, I really wanted from even just a thumbnail, you could tell what you're getting. So I wanted it to look as cyberpunky as possible. 
and nothing more cyberpunky than the silhouetted back of a person looking out over a neon city with the rain. Um, a shout out here to what Chris Benzelon, who did my cover. He is so, so talented. I, I'm going to post sometime soon on the socials all of the, the terrible drawings that I have done and the versions that he has made of covers. I love that. That could be cool. Uh, I like the fact that it's so not here's what we'll do. grim dark. On the, I like the colors. And frankly, if I'm if I'm being perfectly honest, my cyberpunk novels aren't grim dark either. Uh, they certainly are cyberpunk and they have cyberpunk themes, but they are more action adventure, more more fun with fun characters than necessarily dark, grim, and gritty cyberpunk that requires a PhD to understand. I can, I, I appreciate that. Yep. I like some relaxing, not thought. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, mine is more, is more cyberpunk light. You know, it's more, um, you know, that's why it's a long series. Each book is not a super long book. It's just, it's a, it's sort of just a tight action adventure. Some people have read it in an afternoon. The audiobook is only six and a half hours. So it, it's, it's a nice, good, easy read that delves into dark, difficult questions without being dark and difficult itself. Fair enough. So do you think that the rain, cause you see that on a lot of cyberpunk covers, what is it about the rain that seems to go? Is it because it's got a noir feel to it or? I think what is that, it about I think the rain? that is part of it. I think, you know, with, with Blade Runner being sort of the first movie that set the tone for um, what cyberpunk looks like. And it's literally always night and always raining in the first, um, in the first uh, Blade Runner movie. That's why I think that aesthetic has sort of continued on forever like, I don't remember the rain being as much a character in Neuromancer, for example, but in, in certainly for movies, that's that seems to be the, the case. And it has carried on now into the literature. Fair enough. So speaking of the literature, um, <laughs> how did you come up with the, the premise for Into the Neon? Was it um, you, you, you fried a hard drive and it, the smoke got to your brain, <laughs> psychedelics, a Ouija board? What was it? Um, so for me... I was actually writing a uh, fantasy series. I had written a book and a half in fantasy. And the second book, I wrote three quarters of the second book during NaNoWriMo, so during National Novel Writing Month. And I needed a break. I needed a break from fantasy. So I needed to, I was going to write something that was just for myself. Now, cyberpunk is a subgenre that I have just always loved and connected to. Um, from the first time I read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and then on to Neuromancer, I just have always loved it. I mean, if you could see this bookshelf over my shoulder, it is, I'll have to post a picture. It is just chock full of cyberpunk. Um, so as a result, I thought, you know what? I'd love to try my hand at writing some cyberpunk. So Into Neon was created, honestly, as a break, a little bit of a break from fantasy to delve into something that I was super passionate about. And as a result, it ended up, getting its hooks in me in a way that I just wanted to keep writing these characters and keep writing in this world. And it started to balloon into this much larger story that is now a cyberpunk saga. 
fair enough. And so how about this? You take those pictures that you were talking about, including the cover scribbles to what the artist did, and share it in your newsletter next month. And then anybody that wants to see it, go signs up for your newsletter. And all those contacts will be in the show notes. And then they can they can see this amazing art you didn't have. Oh, man, uh, you are better than I am. I need to get so much better at the newsletter stuff. That is exactly what I will do. I will include all of those things in my next newsletter, which I need to write a new newsletter anyway because... Uh, as I mentioned briefly, book four just came out, as well as the audiobook for Into Neon. So anybody who uh, is interested in my book after uh, we just talked about it can now find it in audio form. I recommend Chirp rather than Audible because it is cheaper on Chirp because Amazon, bless you, because Amazon sets their own prices and other things uh, let the authors set their prices. So if you go to Chirp or something, you can get it get it a little less expensive. And Chirp has a usable app too. I actually have a decent amount of books over there on Chirp. And um, Seska in her crusade against Bezos likes anything that's not Amazon. Yeah, so. as a cyberpunk author, I felt the need. You can also, you can get into Neon from the library. You can get into Neon pretty much anywhere where they sell audiobooks because I did not want... I took a pay cut on Amazon to make sure that I could have my book everywhere, everywhere that books are sold. Cause I just, I, it's hard as a, a cyberpunk author to just go exclusive with the evil mega corporation on earth, you know? Yeah. I totally get that. Um, so can you give us the 30 second elevator speech for your book? Absolutely. My favorite, rather than me just sort of reading the back cover or anything, my favorite um, summary of Into Neon actually comes from a reviewer who said, um, Star Wars meets Blade Runner in an epic adventure. And I, I will not, I don't, I would be hard pressed to describe it better than that. You know, it's got the, the Blade Runner setting, but it has um, a, a very hero's journey uh, skeleton. So it, it, that really summarizes it, it pretty well. Plus if you're in an elevator, you know, theoretically you're trying to pitch to Hollywood. So they always love it when you use two existing properties, right? This meets that. So star Wars meets Blade Runner in an, in an exciting adventure is, is perfect. I think. I think that sounds great. And, uh, well, so you use elevator pitches though more for more than just that because my what our thinking one was when we did it because we we put a lot of thought into fandom because Doc sort of makes us or she beats us up and it gets really bloody is you know you go to cons too and people are like oh what did you write and you know elevator rides are short so the question is is sort of narrow it down to sell your to, to new readers yeah that's a great point I actually just uh, I just got a booth at my first con. So I, I probably should practice this elevator pitch. I'm also going to be ordering some magnets. Yeah, it, it really does help. So what's, what's this con? What con? Uh, Silicon in San Jose, which is um, being put on by Adam Savage, who did okay. Mythbusters. So yeah. it's in San Jose. William Shatner, Lou Frigno are going to be there. I mean, among a million other people like Andy Weir for the authors. And so it, it's it seems like it's going to be a... a cool a cool convention so i just signed up yesterday to to get a booth nice i wish you well luck done. it'll be a lot of fun but yeah, yeah i mean it'll, it'll hopefully be i've been to cons as a fan but i haven't been it's weird this whole episode feels like the theme is transitioning from fan to professional in some way well that's awesome though but you got you're doing that and you're doing it well because you know you're not looking at us and going but it's cyberpunk that is the description yeah yes. right 
I had I had somebody who did that to me at a at a, a small convention, and I looked at him and I went, well, "What's your book about?" Uh, well, it's steampunk. Uh, okay, but I assume there's a plot. You're right. <laughs> a and, genre and, uh, is yeah, actually not a description. Yeah. People don't I'm read like, it necessarily exclusively for the genre, and if they do, you're going to get only a very few readers. Like I would hope that people outside of cyberpunk fans would enjoy Into Neon. I th it sounds like a great book, and I'm definitely buying it and uh, going yes, to be one sale. <laughs> so, what is it that makes, other than the massive availability uh, uh, and going beyond the obvious corporate overlord, um, what makes your series really stand out? Uh, for me, it's the characters. You know, I mean, a, a lot of people will love to say that, but I I really have fallen <laughs> in love with the characters. Most of the of the not most of, but several fans who've reached out to me do will tell me about the characters that they really connected to. And I have suggestions for, um, you know, more stories that I want to, I want to tell in that world. I mean, that's sort of how the novella came to be was that somebody, you know, a lot of people connected to, not somebody, uh, connected to the one character. So I wanted to expand that. I have, um, one of the, the main characters who isn't the main character is non-binary, and I do get a lot of people reaching out to me about that character and how they would like to see more of them in, in future work. So I do have a plan to tell their backstory as well. So, you know, it's just, I really like good characters who speak to each other like human beings. Um, I think a lot of times people are writing characters who are speaking to forward the plot exclusively. Now, of course, dialogue is going to forward the plot, but I think there are ways that you can have people sound like people. And I, 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 uh, a lot of the reviews will mention that. And I think that that's something that I'm particularly proud of is, is the characters in this world. I, I think the characters for me often drive it more than even the world setting because, uh, you can, I, I only get fascinated by the world for so long before I'm like, okay, but are the characters cool? Well, nobody's going to stick with reading just because the world is cool. I mean, the uh, reason you that people... You can read <laughs> Well played. <laughs> um, for the most part, people, people want good characters. I mean, you think about something like Game of Thrones, where the reason that it, people were willing to give something that was as violent and gory and not necessarily to the taste of all of these people who became attracted to Game of Thrones, it was because that you started caring about these, these people and you wanted them not to be tortured. Yeah. Joke's on you because he tortured them anyway. Joke's <laughs> on you. That's like hey, the guaranteed way to get your char favorite character to die is to like them. Yeah, well, especially with Martin, yeah. You know, that man. Woo, murderous. Although I've uh, certainly killed off a couple of characters that people like. <laughs> uh, well, sometimes you got to do that. But as long as you're doing it precisely, that's like a precision tool, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it serves a purpose. It, it always works as motivation for the characters, right? Yes. So which tropes do you feel that Into Neon as a cyberpunk, Into Neon, a cyberpunk saga, what do you feel it hits best? Um, for the first book, I, I have a, a lot of the cyberpunk tropes in the first book. As my world grew and continues, of course, I do more of my spins on, on everything, but there are evil megacorporations, 
you know, there are the punk um, heroes who are fighting the system. There's hackers, there's AI worlds, there's cybernetics. I should pause on cybernetics because, you know, cyberpunk always has cybernetics. If you don't have a robot arm, are you even really cyberpunk? But I wanted to, um, I wanted these things to exist organically. I wanted there to be a reason for these things to happen. So for me, I actually was um, watching a Vice documentary about a particular large book selling company. And they were talking about um, robotics taking over human jobs. And this one guy being interviewed said, the one reason that robots can't take over our jobs entirely is because we have a human mind. And so I, in that moment, I thought, and there's the reason for cybernetics, because you have a human mind with the ability to compete for jobs with robots. Yeah. So that will uh, be very interesting, um, particularly because they are moving forward with putting um, chips in people's brains to help fight Alzheimer's and stuff. Absolutely. And don't, don't you worry, there are chips in people's brains and into Neon also. <laughs> so. Anything that involves brains really, uh, like brain surgery, really, really makes me anxious. So what? Oh, did you hold on, hold on, Doc, Doc, hold on. So did you follow then the development by uh by Elon Musk with the brain pig mesh thing that he was doing, where you could control the motor functions of the pig through computers because he put the mesh in its head? <laughs> Literally, my fourth book is called Mind Hack, the one that just came out, and it might deal with the realities of <laughs> having a chip in your brain and what kind of ramifications that would have. Uh, another another author that did that, um, that we've had on the show, Terry Mixon, had that happen. He had a whole societal breakdown that basically sent everyone to the Stone Age because they put all kinds of computers in their bodies and then they got essentially a, a virus. That destroyed yeah, humanity. And that's and that's the, the kind of thing. I love those kinds of, of stories and those kinds of questions. In in into neon, one sort of small moment that, that doesn't have much of a bearing on anything in particular is the main character has this chip in his head and it's hacked, but not for the purposes of taking over his mind. It's hacked for the purposes of selling him on something. And it's just called a hack ad. And so the idea that you would put these chips in your head and then you would get advertising fed directly into your brain was was nice and terrifying for me. Yes. No, I think one of the things that uh, sometimes we miss about sci about sci-fi, particularly over fantasy, is that you can almost explore some of these medical ethics questions without actually having to endanger human human beings and their and their medical rights. Yeah, and so. I think that's great. And, and, you know, that's, I think, one of the just the fun things about cyberpunk in general is just it, because it's always sort of near future Black Mirror level technology, yeah. it's always, it, it's a great way to ask questions about we're just moving forward. You know, we're, what is the Ian Malcolm line? The, um, we, we didn't, we, we were so concerned with whether we could that we didn't stop to think whether we should. Whether we could. Yeah. Another um, one I love is, uh, the slippery slope question because people are, I'm like, no, this is a slippery slope. They're like, no, it's not. And I'm like, really? Go read this novel. You'll see the slippery slope. Right. Yeah. Just imagine getting a pop-up in your vision. <laughs> so yeah, it's, yeah, no, I, I can just see that where that would be a safety question in some ways too, but getting on to though, the back to our 
our regular schedule questions. Um, right. We're just having too much fun uh, here. I know it's a lot of fun. This is a great genre and you're a, a wonderful entertaining guest. Um, what do you think? Um, can cyberpunk work in a fantasy setting? You think? Uh, okay. Well, first, thank you. That was very nice. And then second, um, yes. So uh, shadow run is I think a pretty uh, famous role-playing game. And it's literally that it's um, elves and orcs in, um, yeah. In a cyberpunk, basically just neuromancer future. Um, okay, yeah, I I, I'm familiar with Shadowrun, but I never really made the connection to it. Yeah, so it has, but, you yeah. know, it has hackers and and all that stuff, but it also the hackers are dwarves, and um, so I think I think you can totally blend those kinds of things. I'm also not one of those people that is really hard and fast on. Is it X or is it Y? I much prefer the Venn diagram approach. I think that um, I think that a thing can be two things. Uh, so I, I think that uh, if you want to write fan, like your fantasy novel with hackers, do it. That's that's great. I think it should exist. Marketing such a thing might be a little bit more difficult, but <laughs> I, um, you know they say write to market. You know, so that might be a little harder, but. Um, I think it can totally exist. So, All right, since you so mentioned now on this. Me more than one thing. What? Nope, go ahead. You're, you're ad loving. Go for it. You started talking. I was going to ask him what other subgenres he'd put into Neo in, into Neon in. Um, I don't know that I would categorize it. It, it is pretty, it is pretty firmly in cyberpunk, but also, you know, it is a hero's journey, I guess is really... The other one, so my fantasy, I made the, maybe the biggest blunder ever. So those fantasy books that I talked about writing during Nano, I was writing a murder mystery noir in fantasy. And then I decided to go over to cyberpunk and rather than writing, you know, the right, the, the more common thing of the murder mystery noir, I decided this is where I'll do the hero's journey. Um, so I, I did it a bit backwards. But I, I think that that's sort of the other category that it would fall under. You know, Into Neon does take place in a sort of uh, larger science fiction world. So I do plan to open it up um, and, and go off onto other planets. But cyberpunk fans tend not to love aliens and other planets and that kind of stuff, except sort of cursory mentions of it. So I have I have stayed away from that. You'll hear off-world colonies, and you're and in like altered carbon, for example, they they do have a real connection to outer space. But um, I, I've sort of stayed away from that a little bit. Okay. All right. So now we'll uh, move on to the story itself. So what can you tell us about your main character? Character. What makes him or her unique in the crowded field of science fiction? Uh, so. Uh, so Moss is unique in that he really starts as the everyman cog in the evil mega corporation. He doesn't really think much about his life. Um, I, I sort of structured it as he starts in his, his hex, which is his corporate owned apartment, which he pretty much has never left in his entire life because he works for this company and he works remotely where he uses the chip in his head to control a robot out in the you know, dangerous wasteland. So he, he works from home, his home being literally his work and has never left. And then through a series of hopefully exciting 
um, situations, he does end up having to leave into the larger world of, of BA City outside the, the comfort of his home. I think he's a good character because what one of the things that I really liked, and I get accused of, of him growing up almost too fast, but one of the things that I liked about him was that he has really good instincts. So it's not that he's some chosen one, it's that when put in a difficult time, he rises to the occasion well, which I, I think is kind of, of cool and interesting for a character. Um, I, looking back now, I might have added a montage because people seem to really like like the, the montage. Like he grows up too fast, but if you had that, you know, one paragraph, like he spent a month training, then it would be okay. Um, but I really like I really like the idea of of a character with just really good instincts, and I do explore that as the books progress. Why he has those instincts and how they came to be. Okay, I like that because as right. you that way, so, the character kind of unfolds with you. I, well, absolutely, and I think that's what what hopefully keeps the books interesting. You know, if you have a character who is going to be this unfolding hero, you want them to be tried and you want them to experience life and those difficulties and certainly you know having a robust chip in your mind is also going to be problematic yes so um were there any secondary characters that you uh, found especially memorable because sometimes they can take on life of their own as well you did mention that one of them got a nov novella or novelette so right so um ina Y-N-N-A, ended up being the sort of breakout character after the, the first and second books. So I took a pause after writing the second book to write her novella. It's like 30,000 words and sort of tells her backstory. So she was certainly one. But most, I really have connected to most of the characters. I've, I've wanted to write characters that I like, that I would want to be friends with. Um, if you're going to try to fight the system and take down an evil mega corporation, you're not going to want to work with a bunch of dicks. You're going to want to work with people who you work well with. Um, you know, I, I mentioned to you guys, but I um, haven't said it here yet. I, I was a zookeeper before taking on this, this, this role. And, you know, when you're in a situation that is potentially dangerous or difficult, you guys know this better than anybody, you want to be with people that you trust and have your back and work well with. So I wanted characters who felt like they would organically be friends and work well together. That's not going to say, that's not to say that there isn't conflict. Of course there's conflict and not everybody gets along all the time, but on a fundamental level, they get along and, and they're, they're interesting people. Or at least I hope anyway. Okay. <laughs> so speaking of interesting people, uh, does your character have any bad guys that they have to confront, obviously, without giving us any spoilers? Yeah, so because it's cyberpunk, um, there there are character bad guys as well, but the, the real bad guys are these few evil megacorporations themselves. So um, it is hard to get into it without spoiling too much. But it's on the back matter, so I think it can I can spoil that. The main character works for a company in the beginning that he discovers is maybe not what he thought it was. And so they become the the Fudoko from from the aforementioned mug, become the evil uh, or become the bad guy. Uh, they this um, evil mega corporation. Now there are several other. There's the Carcer Corporation, 
which in this future, there aren't um, government police. People can hire private police to, um, to arrest people basically just on a bounty system. So I took the, the rich control the world to the nth degree here where they literally can just pay for police protection. Or if, you know, somebody's walking their dog down the street and they don't like the way their dog barked at them, if they're rich enough, they could hire the Carcer Corporation to arrest these people. Um, so evil mega corporations really become the, the bad guys of my world. That's attorney. Okay. <laughs> All right, Doc. So if your characters met you in a back alley, how do you think you'd fare? What, how do you see that playing out if they knew who you were? <laughs> Probably not great for me. I've put them all through some really, really bad stuff. Um, killing loved ones, prison, all sorts. They would not be thanking me, I don't think. I mean, you know, it's lighter fare, but it's still not light. Um, this is, you know. You don't think you'd survive to make book seven? No, I definitely, I definitely would not. <laughs> well, yeah, lots of authors say that. I feel bad for their characters. Uh, so do you have a favorite character archetype? Oh, that is a great question. You know, I, it's funny because, you know, the, the, of course, because of the, the nature of the things that I read, the chosen one does come up a lot. Mm -hmm. It's a little hackneyed and done to death, but it also is hackneyed and done to death for a reason. It just works. <laughs> um, for my own books, I sort of picked a more video game approach to the archetypes where you sort of have different the character classes that are needed to succeed on missions and so i sort of had people filling those gaps like i definitely need a hacker for the stories you need somebody who's going to fix the the futuristic tech and then you need somebody who's going to sort of rally the troops um so to speak so so that was the way i sort of formatted it for myself that makes sense Okay. So finally, what can you tell us about the larger universe and miniseries? The worlds where the story is told is as much a character as the protagonist or antagonist. It seems like that's especially true in cyberpunk. So can you give us a hint of what we can expect from this world? Yeah, absolutely. So I, as I said, the character does start as a cog in the machine who lives at work. Uh, that is in, in this future, that is pretty prevalent for a lot of people to live at work. But then he does leave and, and goes to the, you know, the mega city, which is this walled in sprawl that has become the, the neon and hologram ads everywhere. The things that you expect from a, a cyberpunk world um, where a lot of people are smoking in there, flying cars, you know, it, it um, and there's, and I guess the, the main thing that you'll see a lot in cyberpunk and is true in my world as well is, um, a lot of disparity between the, the wealthy and the not wealthy. Uh, there are a lot of poor people and very few wealthy people who live literally above them with their flying cars. Um, so I, I actually really think that the world is one of the characters. 
I would love one day to do like a tabletop role playing game that takes place in the world. I really, I, I think that while it started with a lot of tropes, I've hopefully turned it into something really cool and alive and something that makes sense and that people want to engage with. Okay, so <laughs> there are currently um, seven books out, or seven books planned in this universe, and you've got some side stories. But what do you think is next after you finish that arc that you've already plotted? Where do you see this going? Um, so I do see it, as I said, I think I see it going to the stars. Um, so again, because the world is mostly controlled by corporations, I think it'll be interesting to do maybe sort of the military sci-fi space opera, but with a more corporate controlled space rather than its countries or, you know, altruistic nations working together um, that space is controlled by companies. The Outer Worlds video game, I think did a little bit of that. And I'm sure there's a bunch of books that have tackled similar themes that I just haven't found yet. But I think that would be something fun to do you know, what if companies are the ones who are making first contact and how does that look and what kind of ramifications does that have for society as a whole versus, you know, nations who have to answer to hopefully their citizenry. So I, I think there's some cool meaty material. So I do, I have started the outline for, for some books that are going to take place out there. Book five in a cyberpunk saga comes out at the end of next month. And so the series might wrap up this year. And if that's the case, then we might see end of the year, we might see um, the book in, in a new science fiction world. But I'll probably stick with a connected world for now. I, I like that idea. I like the idea of, while they don't necessarily depend on one another, I like the idea that if you want to flesh out the, the world a bit, oh, here's eight more books that you can read that take place in the same universe. Okay. Um, are you ever going to go back and finish that uh, NaNoWriMo fantasy novel? <laughs> I went back and read these first two fantasy books. They I would probably just have to do a total teardown. They they don't read as as they have not aged well even in four years. They they are not they are not so great anymore. So I would love to write that series. And what's worse is I even actually reference the first fantasy book that I wrote that I don't plan to publish, I reference it in Into Neon. And so now it's just this archaic reference to this thing that doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> That's funny. But the reason Thudoko got its name is because my fantasy world takes place in the Thutan Empire. So I wanted this connective tissue. So I, I made it so that the creator of Thudoko loved my original book but now, of course, I look back on it and don't think I could ever publish it. So I, I may have painted myself right into a corner. Fair enough. So we know that every literary universe, at least the good ones, have internally consistent rules of science, technology, and or magic. Um, so what sort of tech could we expect from these books besides the obvious flying cars you mentioned? Yeah, so I got flying cars. I do have uh, cybernet uh, cybernetics, so people replace body parts with um, machine parts. We have what I called our relief aids, which are sort of the only um, humanoid androids and they serve the purpose that you might expect with the name relief aid. And then 
then um, I have drudges, which are much more the humanoid robots that look like robots. Um, they are the employees who work out in, in, the, in the wasteland where the people can't live. So basically, in my world, the entire planet that isn't in these megacities has become farmland that feeds these megacities and the off-world colonies. So basically, the entire planet was clear-cut. But in order to clear-cut it, a disease happened that, that made it impossible for people to live out there. So it, it's a pretty grim future where people can't go out into the wild. They can only exist in this in these cities and the, the robots go out there. But I have most of the technology you would expect in a cyberpunk thing, but I do try to ground it in a reality. I want it to feel like something that doesn't feel too fantastical, that doesn't feel like it couldn't exist or shouldn't exist for any reason. Flying cars are sort of the closest thing to true sci-fi stuff that, that, um, that I delve into. Uh, well, that and off-world colonies, I guess. <laughs> so of all okay. the tech you have in your book, which one would you want to have for daily use? Oh, boy. Um, yeah. I, you know, a lot of these things sound quite convenient. Um, I would love a flying car. That would be amazing. The, the robotic parts seems a little weird. Anything in my body, I mean, if it's serving a pur purpose, if it's a real prosthesis, that's one thing. In the cyberpunk futures, it's often for vanity or um, for reasons that it, it shouldn't need to exist. So anything that could be hacked in your body, I would be a little weary of. On the other hand, you know, playing a video game by closing your eyes and experiencing it also sounds cool until you get the pop-up in your brain. Yeah, the pop-up advertising would be a little bit much for me. Right. But how, how would you abuse it? Would, it? would you just go, I'm taking a nap, and then go play your video game? I mean, maybe. You know, there, there, there are times that I, I think when your kid is really, really acting up and just sort of not doing anything or not helping you in any way, that it wouldn't be bad to just be able to blink into a fantasy world for a few seconds and blink back and say, oh, you know what, kiddo? You're right. Life is good. Uh, as a parent, I have been known to look at my child and say, I can't handle you right now. You're in timeout in your room. I need 30 minutes to go read and calm down. Right. So, and, you know, I'm making this joke. Let's be real. People use their phones as exactly what I'm describing. Yes. I mean, go to any it's playground. Just more subtle and see if you're like, I'm counting to 10 quietly. Right. It's a little bit more subtle because you could be counting to 10 quietly. So. It's it's really true. Yeah, the, the thing I was about to say was that if you go to any playground, most of the parents are escaping into another world on their phone, be it Facebook or whatever. They are they are escaping. There are only so many times I can watch my child slide down a slide as much exactly as I love them. Right. Once I hit thirty, I've definitely exceeded my limit in a row. <laughs> right. Um, since we were talking about the technology, one of the things in my world because I saw everybody holding their phones, I just skipped ahead and eliminated the phones and I have what are called palm screens in my world, which is just a fiber mesh phone that's stitched into the palm of your hand. So you can oh, wow. control your own phone just by doing this and just texting and watching stuff on your palm rather than having to hold the phone. CJR, you could then watch your screen and count to five at the same time. 
Yeah, but at that point in time, if you're already got that much tech, why not just think the text into being instead of having to actually digitally type it? I, I, I end up having that yeah. too. So it's all about your little okay. what you can do. So do you are you gonna put aliens in your universe? In the expanded universe, yes. In the cyberpunk version, I uh, in the cyberpunk stories, no. Once it expands out into space, I, I do think there's going to be other species. It, it's hard to look at the vastness of this universe. Of look up at night. It's hard to envision that there is no other life and intelligent life. But there's oh, yeah. so much varied, amazing life on this planet alone that it, it seems inconceivable to me that it doesn't exist elsewhere. So when you do, have you designed your aliens yet? Only one because I've started to write a, a short story so, that hopefully I'll have out later this year that does that does encounter an alien species. How did you go about that? Did you do it purpose built? Did you just like eat way too much popcorn? <laughs> so um, for me, it's all about the nature of evolution. You know, as somebody who worked with wildlife, you see yeah. how animals evolve and why they evolve and how each animal is in its own way perfect for the environment that it has evolved to, to live in. It's taken millions of years to, to be this thing. So like I worked with giraffes, for example. I mean, they're awkward looking and they're unbelievably tall and they, their pattern is, and they're adorable. Um, yeah, I had the pleasure of doing, of, uh, doing some wild capture and helping to relocate some giraffes into, the, into a national park in Africa that they had never existed in or they hadn't existed in since being driven into extinction there. So it was, you know, giraffes have a special place in my heart. But my point being, they don't necessarily look like something that should exist logically, but if you study them and every single thing about them is perfect and needs to exist, they have the heart the size of a basketball because they need to pump blood six feet up. So they, they are perfectly evolved for their exact shape and size and to outcompete other food, other animals for leaves. So when I was designing aliens, I did the, I took the exact same approach. Why in the world would this species look this way? Because um, why would the species look this way based on the planet, their environmental surroundings? So, okay. and, uh, that's uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, you started talking. You're, you were going, I was going to read 34, but I'll let you do it since it's your assigned question anyways. See, I'm generous okay. like that. That was very I'm nice of you. It's very nice of you. So uh, as this interview <laughs> is clearly winding down, before we wrap this up, was there anything about Into the Neon, Into Neon, a cyberpunk saga that we didn't ask before we move on? No, I feel like we, had, we have a, a good sense of what the book is. My guess is that listeners are either going to have connected to what I've said so far or decide that this is not their cup of tea. Um, you know, I, I, I feel very proud of this world and this books. And so I hope people out there, you know, if a couple of people listening to this end up um, reading it and enjoying it, that's all I could really hope for. And, you know, if they want to reach out to me and tell me that they enjoyed it, then that's just the best thing ever. You know, 
ultimately, writing is just another form of art, and you just hope that people connect to your art. You know, you're writing it for yourself, but you put it out there for others to enjoy. So if a person says, you know, I read your book and I got transported away for an afternoon, that, what more could you want in this world, really? Fair enough. So um, as we wind this down, can you tell listeners how they can find you? Yeah. So um, I've mentioned Thudoco as the evil mega corporation. I am Thudo World, T-H-U-T-O-W-O-R-L-D on everything. If you want to find me on Instagram, Instagram uh, sort of the most personal. I post pictures from my real life. Facebook is if you want basically news and updates from uh, from pretty strictly my professional side. Twitter, I just bounce around to Twitter whenever I, I remember to do it. But I'm anywhere. I'm even on PSN or Xbox, or Steam. I'm, I'm anywhere you, you want to find me. I'm on LinkedIn. I haven't done anything with it. But I do have a Thudo World account in most places. So if you want to find me, you can find Thudo World anywhere you want to you want to find me and tell me, hopefully, how much you loved Into Neon. All right, and you can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech, and tech blades. Anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech, and tech blades. You can follow us on Twitter at SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. It's almost like the SF stands for sci-fi or something. You can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. And remember to send all your hate mail to seska at blastersandbladespodcast.com. But uh, the, the, the main one is... We are. Uh, the main one is Blasters and Blade Podcast at gmail.com. You can follow our shenanigans on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Blasters and Blades Podcast. And finally, you can support the show at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it's for the podcast. And we promise to keep the co-host Nick Garber and Doc Seska duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. Or if you'd want to make a more regular monthly contribution, you could do so at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades for as little as 99 cents a month. Now, bring us home, Doc, before you make fun of me anymore. You know you love it. Or at least <laughs> they do. Uh, so thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for the overworked absentee, Nick Garber. J.R. Hanley, who's in need of more coffee. I am your over-caffeinated Seska. This was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week indulging our love of uh, apparently drinks, nerd culture, cheesy jokes, picking on J.R. Thing and things that go boom. <laughs>